Welcome to the Fabric Podcast, where we explore company culture and how it scales as a company grows. Brought to you by the team at The Receptionist, a bootstrapped Denver-based software company. Each episode of Fabric will set out to uncover unique and uncommon answers to the question, how do companies of any size create a culture and core values that employees actually live out? On this episode of the Fabric Podcast, we're joined by Dr. Ajeta Robinson, a therapist with clinical expertise in grief and trauma. She is the founder and clinical director of the Friends in Transition Counseling and is also one of our happy customers. In addition to her private practice work, she's an educator, speaker, and author. She joins us today, along with our founder, president, and CEO, Andy Alsop, to discuss the important topic of how to have courageous conversations about race and diversity in the workplace. She shares information and actionable tips on how to recruit and retain diverse employees in an authentic way, and we talk about creating a culture that honors diversity. She educates us on implicit biases and the critical idea of personhood, and we very much appreciate her joining us for today's episode. Welcome back to the podcast. We are so excited for our guest, Dr. Robinson. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And Andy, as always, welcome back to the show. Love being on here. So, Dr. Robinson, let's start off. Please share with us a little bit about yourself, including your experience and your expertise when it comes to having these conversations about race and diversity in the workplace. Absolutely. So I'm a licensed clinical professional counselor um, with clinical expertise in grief and trauma. And so I really help clients, as well as corporations and organizations, really think about the ways that grief and trauma show up personally, but the ways that those issues might show up in the workplace. And so I've spent a, a great part of this COVID experience or just this climate that we're in really talking about the ways that we're experiencing not only collective grief, but the ways that we're experiencing race-based trauma or race-triggered trauma um, in our society. And what does it mean um, for our leadership? What does it mean for uh, workplace morale um, and workplace culture? And so what are the responsibilities that we have as leaders, as employees and employers in, in having those conversations? And so I spent the better part of my year in corporate before I became a mental health professional. And now I work almost exclusively with other professionals, both in corporate settings, but also from a wellness perspective. Well, we are excited to have you on today to learn more about what you do and how you support companies. So Andy, we know that this is an important topic, especially right now. So why was it important to you and to our company to have Dr. Robinson on the show? Well, this is something, this is an area in diversity in and of itself, has been something we've wanted to focus on for some time, not even including the protests and everything else that is going on now. And honestly, we've had struggles with it. We've wanted to do something here. We haven't known what to do. Uh, We've been reaching out to people. And so when the opportunity to do this podcast came up and Dr. Robinson was nice enough to join us on the podcast, I thought, that this could be an opportunity for us to have an authentic discussion. As we know, this is called the Fabric Podcast. And those are our core values. We try to live to those core values. One of those values is authenticity. So I am, and also to be bold. And I want to be bold. And I want to say, and I want to ask Dr. Robinson, probably put her a little bit uh, on the spot and just ask her, uh, what is it that a small company like ours, we're only 16 people now, but what is it that a small company like ours can be doing to improve diversity without making it something that is sort of forced 
and that is authentic, that is bold, and that holds to our core values. And if it's okay, I'm just going to throw out that question and, and ask Dr. Dr. Robinson, what can we be doing? Absolutely. And so I, w- I want to just remind us that diversity um, is so much more than race and ethnicity, right? And that is one of the areas that we're focusing on right now because of the social uprising in our country, um, but that we should be focusing on the other intersections of one's identity. I think one of the the fundamental things that we have to do anytime we're faced with how do we intentionally create a culture and climate that both honors and includes diversity is to first have courageous conversations among our existing leadership, among our existing partners. And what what does that mean? That means really really talking about the fact that we are lacking in diversity in whatever ways that might be. It may be from a gender or non-binary perspective. It may be from a race and ethnicity perspective. Um, it may be from an ability perspective, right? Where, the way, where are our blind spots? And if we honor that that is just a true thing that we are noticing that is either missing or that's not intentionally a part of our fabric, then we can discover what are some inherent ways that we may have been building our team that leads to this homogenous group, right? What are some inherent ways that, again, might be implicit in our recruitment strategies, our marketing strategies um, that might lean towards people who look like us? And then we can be intentional about developing a strategic and authentic plan to modify those or to be more inclusive and intentional so that we change the audience that we attract, right? But we're still going to hold true to the values around skill set and integrity and mission. We're just going to add an additional lens that diversity in workplace and workforce is a part of that, those, those core values and that core mission. And so I think it starts with an honest conversation about where we are and an authentic conversation about what capacity we need to build. Um, One of the things that happens often is, is we develop these diversity initiatives, but we don't actually think about what we might need to change in our way of being from an implicit bias perspective, Um, not necessarily a core value unless we have some interesting issues there, but usually from an implicit bias perspective that we need to change so that when we attract um, employees of color, that we actually have a workplace environment that can retain and promote equity and diversity and inclusion so that it actually becomes a part of our lived experience as opposed to just our diversity statement. And so I think we start with the courageous conversations inward and then invite others into that conversation so we can develop strategic plans of action and implementation. And when, when you say implicit bias, can you expand mm-hmm. on that a little bit more so that I can I can understand yeah. it and make sure we all understand it Absolutely. in our company? Absolutely. So implicit biases um, are the inherent beliefs and values that we have. They are often ones that we can even inherit or we're not consciously aware of them in some ways, but they, they are these unconscious things that inform our behaviors and our feelings. Um, this can happen in, in the way that we believe if we believe that men perhaps are more suited for a certain job type or job conditions, we might even even be doing it in a way that we think is protective of women or other individuals, but it automatically biases our selection when we're looking for candidates to fill roles, right? Um, We might have implicit bias around 
assertive communication that might code certain language and behaviors of minorities as more aggressive when those same behaviors might be coded for someone who's not a person of color um, as simply assertive or clear communication. And so those are some implicit biases that might be underlying um, that can influence our hiring practices. It can influence our performance evaluations, right? So we might rate implicitly um, or unconsciously minorities lower when it comes to communication or or certain behaviors um, because we're less prone to mistakes that we're not even aware that we're evaluating them differently. And so those are ways, very easy ways that they show up in um, that we have to address, right? That we don't even, they're not these covert forms of racism and discrimination. They are more like microaggressions, right? So they're these really overt things that if we're not paying attention, they can happen, right? And so a, an example of that might be our, our policy around bereavement leave, right? So our bereavement leave policy in most companies don't may not honor the relationship of, let's say, godparents or fictive kin, something that's really, really an important cultural element for many African-Americans, right? And so if we only honor the nuclear family, we might be missing a whole area of diversity and inclusion from our just our bereavement policy that we're just not even aware of, right? Many of our bereavement policies also don't honor the symbolic losses that can wipe out the internal resources of our staff because our implicit bias tells us that grief is only limited to physical losses, right? And so those are just some implicit things that inform policy that we're not aware of unless we have some of these courageous conversations to address the way we identify family even and how that rolls over into the benefits we offer. And so those are just some implicit biases that show up most frequently in organizations. This is uh, super helpful and a lot of tactical stuff. And I'm, Sarah, I hope I'm not taking over the podcast on this one, but I have so many questions. You're in in charge here, Andy. You're allowed to do that. Okay. All right. (laughs) You just keep going. (laughs) (laughs) We had had, I had had the benefit of of us having a, a brief conversation a couple of days ago. You gave me some excellent tactical advice. And that was, how is it that as part of your diversity initiative to actually attract the candidates and to make sure that you're putting, you're getting yourself in front of the, the right candidates and the, the, a diverse candidate pool? Could you share a few of those things with me again here for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. And so in our recruitment efforts, if we're interested in getting in front of a more diverse audience. We have to first identify how we generally recruit people. And so many of us in in our organizations, we recruit people um, by three degrees of separation. So an employee knows someone that knows someone. And that inherently uh, skews that recruitment pool to people who likely look like us, right, or that have similar behavior or or activities. And so, again, if we're interested in a, um, a group that's more diverse, then we may make sure that our recruitment strategies includes things that aren't in our sphere of comfort, right? And so we might do things like in making sure um, that we're in front of HBCUs, for example, right? That we are in front of groups that already serve diverse audiences. And so if you were looking at recruiting African-Americans, let's say in the tech industry, then there are a ton of conferences that are geared towards African-Americans in tech, right? And so we would make sure that we are perhaps advertising or sponsoring or attending those events so that it increases our likelihood that we are present in those communities. If we are interested in, in um, 
recruiting folks who speak different languages, we would again want to make sure that we are we understand how they receive information about job opportunities and so that we are intentional about being in front of those. Um, this could be their national and state organizations that they are more likely to belong to. Many of them have specific membership levels for, let's say, um, you know, uh, Southeast Asians, right, may have a specific membership category. Um, so we would just be intentional about that. Are we connecting with the um, extracurricular places that minorities are likely to engage in? They often have directories and things like that. And so having an intentional strategy to make sure that we are in front of a diverse audience, right? And so we know that just in the tech industry, um, there's a lot of evidence that says you're more likely to find African-American candidates on Twitter than you are on LinkedIn. And so if we understand that about the demographics, we know where we probably should spend more time building audience and visibility so that we actually can get in front of them. Um, And then we also want to be mindful in our marketing. So if we're advertising for a a certain position and we want to make sure that people read that position as open to people from all different backgrounds, then the marketing material should include people that are diverse. Right. And so we want to make sure that the images and the pictures and when we talk about family and workplace culture, that we are talking about those things, but that people can also see them and that it's not in a performative way. This is the action piece around being involved in those communities, being involved in those networks and those events is because that's the action part of being a part of community that is diverse, is is not only putting time and resources, but action behind that. Um, that value, right? That goal. And then understanding that we may need to think differently about the benefits that we offer. And so I know that you all are able to do some remote stuff even before COVID, just because of the industry that you're in. But that might be something that may be more appealing to, let's say, a mom from a, a single mom from a minority background, because work life and balance, work life balance is that much more important. And so we're not penalizing them for having full lives outside of work. But we also want to attract the best talent without, with the least amount of barriers, right, to doing that. That, again, that's the culturally competent aspect of our recruitment and retention policies um, that can make or break whether or not we are an attractive company for minorities that might have different needs um, than someone that doesn't have um, a certain family dynamic or, or that may need certain resources. And so we want to think intentionally about Um, What are the unique needs of the population we're wanting to make sure this is accessible for and think about what what are those benefits that align with our culture um, and think about how we can intentionally offer those things. That's great, because I think that actually adds to the retainment piece as well. You kind of hit both sides on that. Go ahead, Sarah. Yes, I know. Andy sees me wanting to ask the question because that's there's so much great information about recruitment, but the retainment is so important, too. you have this diversity, how do you make sure that these employees want to stay? Because that's a hugely important part of it too. That's another part of the courageous conversation, right? And so the conversation doesn't stop once we recruit them. Actually, the conversation and that relationship just begins. We often um, fall into the trap of utilizing things like affirmative action to recruit minorities. But we don't do things that impact workplace, workplace culture that affects their day-to-day experience. And so those things are, um, we know that overwhelmingly employees leave toxic work environments 
and toxic leaders. It is very rarely the work itself. And so if we are having courageous conversations, we might be thinking about the way that we might um, have certain evaluation processes or even promotion processes that lends itself naturally to those who are able to do maybe social hours, right? So if we know that those relationships are built after hours, that makes a, that's a disproportionate advantage that folks might have over someone that let's say has a family, right? Oftentimes that negatively affects women with children because they aren't able to go to the after hours things. They're constantly having to make decisions between those. And so if we know that that's likely how promotion relationships, right? Those pre-promotion relationships are built. What are things that we can do to equalize that playing field for folks who aren't able to do those extra hours of socializing or networking or those things? Are we promoting and do we have specific programs that are geared towards developing managers who um, come from minority backgrounds? Again, we know that um, they may be less likely to have received similar opportunities. And so they may not come in management ready, but they have capacity. And so do we have mentoring and coaching that we're being very intentional about grooming people for promotion? And then there's the other piece around pay equity. We don't talk about this enough, but we know that this is across the board disparity, not only from a gender perspective, but also from a racial ethnic perspective. It is overwhelmingly true that there are disparities in pay. And one of the ways that we're able, this is able to be maintained is that we've developed as a culture, as a society, that we don't discuss pay with other people. It often means that minorities end up being disproportionately underpaid. And so we want to evaluate those things to ensure that we are compensating people with similar skill sets, with similar responsibilities at an appropriate, um, at similar rates, right? Um, and again, that work-life balance is just going to be really, really important. Um, being mindful of having HR policies and processes. If a, if employee is coming and saying that they believe that they're experiencing microaggressions or discrimination, making sure that we're providing space to actually process those conversations. Um, and so having open dialogues, not doing the traditional HR evaluations right up front because that sends us on a data mine. And we often that leads us to negate the lived experience of the person. And I'm not saying that every scenario is actually a microaggression or discrimination, but we do want to make sure that we're creating a culture where we're able to talk those things through and that there's an action that happens on the back end. And so that may mean additional training for our leadership. It may mean um, having a zero tolerance policy around covert racism and discrimination, because then you create a safe workplace environment, not only for feedback, but for a long a long relationship. People who feel valued invest. People that feel valued stay. And so making sure that we have conversation and space for that bi-directional conversation to occur, um, those are the courageous conversations we want to commit to having. That's great. I've learned so much already. So Andy, um, Dr. Robinson said a lot about these courageous conversations. Can you share a little bit more about the conversations that we've been having around race and diversity and why these are so important to us at The Receptionist? Well, I think we've definitely had, we've had a lot of these discussions, as I said, when we began. Um, we were having these discussions before the whole George Floyd situation and, and the protests and everything else. And we hadn't really made as much progress as we wanted to. 
And what we had to do, actually, I think, uh, from a leadership level was to have, and we, we didn't call it this, but now I have the terms for it, and that is the courageous conversations to try to figure out what is it that we can do while remaining authentic. And something we said at a leadership level was that we wanted to make sure we weren't trying to check boxes, fill quotas, or things like that, because that wasn't, that wasn't authentic. We wouldn't then be bringing somebody in because they were going to be the best that they could be and be able to contribute to the, to the organization. So we've decided that it's important, and I, and I hope this is right, and I, I challenge Dr. Robinson to say whether this is the right strategy, but we've basically said we need to make sure we're building an organization that is built around our core values and the goals that we want to achieve, and that we want to increase our diversity and then learn a lot from that in terms of where we wanted to take that, in terms of knowing that we want to change our practices around uh, the, even how we write our job descriptions and how um, something you brought up uh, again in our conversation and hence said, which is on our website, if we don't have diversity in the videos and in the animations we use and things like that, that's not going to help us attract talent and attract interested individuals. And then another thing we've done, which I think has been very valuable, is somebody who we've, we've had on in past uh, in a past podcast as well, Lila Blauner from Scalability Solutions. They do all of our hiring. And so Tom, our director of sales, and myself just recently had a conversation with her. And we said, what is it that we can do to increase our diversity? And luckily, she has been, she has really studied this. And some of the things that Dr. Robinson, you've already said, are some of the things that she's said as well. We got to make sure that our job postings are written so that they're going to attract a diverse audience. They need to be put in places where a diverse audience is going to be able to find those, those job postings. It would be great if we could uh, advertise with an HBCU in Colorado, but after doing a search, we don't have an HBCU. So in Colorado, uh, we may want to try to recruit people. We have a very strong culture that we like to build the company where everybody is, is together. We have a, uh, we, we have a diverse way of working. Uh, we work a lot of times uh, from our homes and from the office, but also that connection that we've created by all being in Denver right now, and we know that we're going to grow to a size that's not going to be sustainable for, for the time being, for forever. But sure. for the time being, we want to bring those team members in because they're still early team members. So maybe even recruiting from out of state and, and bringing people in. So those, those are some of the things that we've been doing. It's very much top of mind, of course, right now. And I think I've almost got now with this podcast, a training video that we're, I'm going to be giving to my leadership team. and. <laughs> And they can hear this whole conversation. So those are some of the things that we've been doing. So Dr. Robinson, what do you think about that? How, 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 are, we, how are we doing with this? And, and what are your thoughts of maybe what we can even improve on? Yeah, so I, I love the things that I have heard um, so far. I think it's great that there's intentionality and authenticity there. I think that making sure that this is a part of the long-term objective and mission um, and understanding that the learning curve around, you know, kind of what works and what doesn't work. It's just a part of the very, uh, the mission and the fabric and the values of the organization so that someone coming in 
especially your very first hire, in in no way feels tokenized, right? And so I think by honoring your core values, um, it decreases the likelihood that that is is um, occurring. I think that it's also important to just acknowledge as an organization, as a team, and this is true for all of us, is that we all have implicit bias, right? If we can acknowledge that, if we can acknowledge and normalize being uncomfortable talking about race and diversity and discrimination, it is icky, it is painful, but silence around it is violent, literally. And so if we can normalize it, we're gonna, we're gonna be uncomfortable. We're even going to have to do some of our own work. We have to. If we really are committed to diversity, if we're committed to safe spaces, if we are committed to racial um, injustices kind of being obliterated here, right? In our workplace culture, in this, in the, the spheres that we can control, that starts with us individually and as an organization, we all play a part. And so if we can just address that piece um, and just normalize that this is an ongoing conversation that's about growth, but that's first about personhood, then the uncomfortable pieces that sometimes feel icky because we feel like we are benefiting from some of these systems, some of these, you know, these rules, some of this history that doesn't feel good to be so up close and personal, that we're all there together, right? We're, regardless of whether or not we are in the minority culture or not, we are all in that same place together. And I think that creates a safer space just acknowledging that we all have work to do, even as a Black woman, I have implicit biases. And so if we can just own that as both normal, we can commit to doing this, I think, long-term and well, and we won't feel the urge to get it right today, right? Because that's impossible to get it right. But if we can just continue to recommit to the conversations, I think that goes a long way. It also will demonstrate to your employees there's a real commitment there, right? That isn't just, it's trending right now. Because right now, I, I can't tell you the amount of requests I am hearing and seeing minorities are being inundated with offers that they never have had in front of them before um, and feeling feeling um, a bit of ambiguity around that. So there's excitement, but there's also this thing that caused you to question, am I being offered this because? right? Am I the, the, the person that's checking the box? And so if we can have a long-term plan of sustainability, of diversity and inclusion, I think that goes a long way of living those values. And so that would be the only piece. And I think in our conversation, I've already heard that as something that you already acknowledge and honor. That's actually something I've been wondering about is what, whether the volume of offers and things like that just because of the the social consciousness now, mm-hmm. if that's actually been happening, and how mm-hmm. that must make um, individuals feel and say, well, yeah. am I am I actually getting this yes. offer because I'm the best candidate, or because they're trying right. to check some sort of box? And that that's really helpful to hear. Yeah, Dr. Robinson, there was something really interesting that you said that we wanted to touch on. Is this discomfort that a lot of people have about having these sorts of conversations? As you said, you have to take a hard look at yourself, at your company culture. Um, and you, you've talked about this a little bit, but what can we do to deal with our discomfort to not minimize it, but move through it so that we can sure. have the conversations and we can actually take action to mm-hmm. creating diversity in the workplace that, again, is not checking boxes, but is actually very meaningful. I know you said people Absolutely. can do their own work, but can you give us some more practical, tangible yeah. ideas? 
Absolutely. I think learning about implicit bias, I think learning about microaggressions, I think learning about privilege and power, I think those things are important because it gives us context, it gives us language so that we feel we can evaluate and we can reflect on the ways that we might benefit, the way that we can even leverage power and privilege, right, in the quest for diversity and equity, because that's a thing if we choose it to be. And so I think it gives us a foundation that is not in um, riddled and mired in you have done this and this is how it affects me. I think that stops many conversations. But if we can both come to spaces and say, I understand that I have benefited from, right? And although that is not something that I'm actively maintaining or promoting, I understand that it is a part of our society. I am committing to having conversations and being mindful of my behavior and using my voice. And this conversation, like the dialogue we're having now, right? To be honest, if I didn't feel the authenticity from Andy, I wouldn't be here, right? And so I don't mind the questions from someone that I know is committed and that's authentically um, interested in, in doing this work. I have said no to conversations that were very clear that they wanted me present or they wanted to do the work because of an ulterior motive that wasn't authentic. And so people hear that, right? I think when we um, doing our own work is really about increasing our awareness and our, our knowledge around what actually is happening, what has happened, what continues to happen, and that we all have a part to play. Some of us aren't in positions of power. We can say, I need to rewrite that policy because that's not the power that we even have. But we might have the ability of calling out when we see someone engaging in a way that harms another person. And by harming, I don't mean physical. It means You know, if we're sitting in a meeting and someone says, well, that's aggressive, let's say, hey, let's think about what that word actually means or the way that it's being weaponized because it's a minority person. We don't use that same language when this person behaves this way. And so, again, it's it's a safe care frontation. Right. And so that requires that we confront the uncomfortable thing or the thing that we're experiencing. But our goal is to move everyone to a different, a better place, as opposed to just naming the thing that doesn't really help any of us. Um, And so I think that it's important that we have ongoing conversations and trainings at the executive level, but also at just everyone in the organization and know that some of your own narrative, your own experiences, even some of your family values may come up. We've seen an increase in people reaching out for therapy services because they are aware that they have, I mean, they have really engaged or behaved in ways that has truly harmed other people. And there's a lot of guilt and shame around that. And to those people, I say, I'm glad that we have that awareness and we can still do work there too. And so having some self-compassion for self, but not centering yourself, especially if you are in a place of privilege, that your discomfort is nothing compared to the lived experience um, of people who are, who are being harmed by these circumstances, but it doesn't negate your feelings, right? And so understanding that those can simultaneously exist. Um, The last thing that I think I I, I will say about that is um, one of the pieces that that comes up a lot in having these conversations is um, we talk a lot about history and we talk about the politics of it. And that's one of the reasons that I, those are deflections, right? And those are almost always harmful and they almost always devolve the conversation. Um, And so if we can stay away from those things and stay on personhood, right? And the very, the things that we all have in common 
we have in common, right? Regarding our personhood, wanting our personhood to be safe, wanting to be seen as individuals that are capable, that are warm, that are giving, right? That we we enjoy the same liberties. We want those same freedoms and opportunities for our children, for our, our family members. Um, and if we can get it back just to that level, we just want, we all want the same things, right? And so I think we all have that in common. That might help us hear people and one another differently if we remove some of the, I think, more triggered language from it, because it really is a conversation about personhood. I think those those are maybe may helpful approaches to have these difficult conversations. Absolutely. That was really helpful. Lots of very specific ideas that people can apply. So Andy, before we finish up with Dr. Robinson today, is there anything else you want to ask her before we we let her go for today? <laughs> I was wondering, I wanted to see if you could help me define the word personhood so that I understood it. What does mm-hmm. that, when you say that, What because it's come up a bunch of times, it seems like an important yeah. concept. I want to make sure I get it. So we talk about personhood a lot in the therapy space. And so you'll see it in like organizational psychology or just based psychology. And so it really is understanding that as people uh, at, at our core, we are more than whatever our identifiers or characteristics might be. If we can identify that we are all unique beings, we are multifaceted, then we might understand that at the very basic level, we all have the very same components and needs, right? And so without talking about our differences, if we get back to the personhood pieces that we all have in common, we actually share the same personhood, right? So we share the same personhood and we all have a body that we want to keep safe. We all have thoughts and feelings, regardless of how they might differ. We all have ways in which we feel safe and we have basic level needs that we all want honored. And so we can just get back to that personhood level. We often do things, I'll give you an example in the mental health realm, um, where we talk about autistic people. The emphasis is on the diagnosis of autistic, right? And it is not on that there's a person that has all of these other things, right? That they might be creative, they may be a musician uh, or uh, a artist artist or a gymnast that has autism. And so we honor the person and their personhood first, well before we talk about all the other features or characteristics. And so if we get back to that very base level, we have way more in common with one another. We want the same things for ourselves and our loved ones. And that means that we actually see people. We don't necessarily, we still see color and all of those things. But if we can just say we honor the very basic elements of life, of each person in our country, we might make decisions that are actually people-centered and people-driven, as opposed to decisions based on race and ethnicity and you know language and those other characteristics, which make up our personhood, but they are not the totality of who we are. Very helpful. That's great. So before we finish up today, Dr. Robinson, any final tips for having these courageous conversations? Um, I would just remind everyone that these conversations, they are uncomfortable. They are difficult. They are necessary. Um, they are exhausting as well. They are exhausting. And so I just want to normalize that. Um, we talk a lot about self-care. This is so important, especially in this new, this climate that we're in. We're in the midst of a public health pandemic and a uh, racial justice and social uprising, there's a lot, right? And we're doing it for many of us that we're still 
operating at full speed under-resourced, right? There's no break in separation between work and personal life, work and family life, and many of our normal coping strategies um, may not be accessible. And so just understand that if we are experiencing things that feels like decreased productivity, loss of concentration, loss of sleep, we're feeling all of the things in our body, that's normal and natural under the, the circumstances that we're existing. Um, it can happen anytime under uh, extreme stress and duress. That self-care is so, so important to do this work and to do it long-term. Um, and so I would, I would ask anyone that's listening, employers, employees, individuals, to understand that um, that work again starts with you and it requires that you're engaging in radical self-care to actually be available to confront some of the things we're talking about. Um, we want to be able to do that as close as we can to being our best self. And that includes being as rested and as clear and focused as we can. Um, but that isn't, it isn't a marathon conversation, right? It isn't, it isn't that we can't just do it in a one four-hour block and think we've gotten all the things, right? It is a process that, that requires that we metabolize some of what we're learning and hearing and understanding about ourselves and our organizations. And so give yourself grace. And give yourself permission to stretch it out, right? But just do it. Just do the work. Well, thank you. Those were some fantastic tips throughout our conversation today. Um, Dr. Robinson, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Andy, thank you as always for being here for this conversation. Of course. And thank you, Dr. Robinson. I really appreciate it. You're very good at what you did. What you do, I came in a little bit nervous and I feel much better already. Thank you for the for the, your really great words. It's been it's been fantastic. Absolutely, I'm super excited for all the work that you all are doing as you continue to expand, and I'm especially thankful because we benefit for, for your creativity. We certainly benefit in being able to utilize all that you all offer within our business, and so that's really really thank you for thinking of us and doing that work. It means a lot. You're welcome. Thank you, Dr. Robinson. Thank you, Andy. Again, we want to thank Dr. Robinson for taking the time to join us for this episode and having a courageous conversation with us. We look forward to using what we learned in today's episode to become a more diverse team. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Robinson's therapy work, visit fit-counseling.com and you can learn more about her other areas of work and expertise at ajetarobinson.com. For more information on The Receptionist, including a two-week free trial with no credit card required, visit us at thereceptionist.com.